Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome our online viewers, and I need to start off. I don't usually do this, but I need to say something really political. Don't cancel me. Don't cancel me. You're ready. You're ready to go. I know. Um, the Arkansas Razorback baseball team is the greatest baseball team in the world. <laughs> SEC, the United States, I think the world, right? What a fun, what a fun year this has been. Well, um, on to more important things than that. By the way, that guy who just gave announcements, I changed his diapers. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Now I'm sitting at his feet, amening, learning about Jesus. Praise God. Well, welcome back to our study in the New Testament book of Philippians. Um, do me a favor, if you haven't already, please open your, your Bibles or your Bible devices to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1 and just hold it there for a few minutes. If you'd like to follow along more closely, you can go to the Bible app. Last week, Kevin Rusak unpacked five characteristics of what it looks like to be a fellow servant and a follower of Jesus Christ. He looked at Timothy, but more so he looked at Epaphrodites. And I would highly recommend, if you haven't already, um, go to the webpage, get online, and listen to that talk. Well, on a more serious note, before we, before we dive into the text, let me, let me share some personal thoughts. Uh, and a lot of you have been here. This isn't special to me, um, but it's my reality. Over the last four weeks, uh, I've been to the funeral of two men uh, who've been my friends for 28 and 24 years, respectively. And they both died unexpectedly at the age of 55 and, and 40, 24 years, pardon me, 55 and 48 years of age. And as you can imagine, um, it, it got me thinking about my own life and the lives that I'm privileged to shepherd. And I was reminded where Solomon says it's better to go into, into the house of mourning, to a funeral, than to a party. Why? Because it, it causes us to think deeply about the things that really matter. And so I've been thinking deeply about the things that, I mean, I tend to anyways, but I, I can stray like anybody else, the cares of this world. And I keep thinking about this question and I want to lay it out for us and hopefully it frames our, our talk for this morning. But here's what I've been thinking. As followers of Jesus, what is our purpose on this planet? And I know for some that's a tough question. Have you ever, have you ever wondered about that? Why has God put us right where we are right now? Do you think it, it happened by chance that, that maybe you're, you're single? Or married, you, you have children at home, or children on the way, or children that are long gone? Do you think it happened by chance that you have a good job or you're in a, a bad job? Or is there a larger purpose at work in our lives? Let me ask that question from a completely different perspective. Because this is gonna happen one day. We tend to be momentary people. We tend to live in the moment. But one day, we're going to have to, to show our, our lives when we stand before King Jesus. And what are we going to show? A good job? A college degree? Money in the bank? Lots of friends? A great reputation? A successful career? The praise of others? A winning Record, a bunch of awards, departmental chairman or chairwoman, president, CEO. And let me lovingly say this. 
if that's all we've got to show for our lives, then we, don't, we really don't have much going for us. Sooner than we think, we'll be lying in a box six feet underground with grass growing over our head or sit, sitting on a mantle, our ashes in a vase. And all the things of this world will not matter. You need to understand this. Somebody will have your money. Somebody will have your job. You're not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna work at my job until you die. Or you retire and then you die. Our fame will fade, our glory will disappear, and everything we now own will belong to others. Someone else will be sitting in your folding chair right here in this church, to which many of you are saying, hallelujah. They'll be sitting in your seats in the bleachers. I don't know why you sit in the bleachers. There's a special grace for you. I don't get it. I hope you're not checking out, but all the more you're checking in because you're so uncomfortable sitting there. We will eventually be forgotten. Except by those people who stumble on our, our gravestone 100 years from now and they say, <laughs> Epstein, sounds Jewish, but he's got a cross and some verses from the New Testament. Huh, who is this guy? I wonder what his story is. That reminds me of something my mother-in-law would always say. I know it's not always normal for a son-in-law to love and admire his mother-in-law, but I sure do. I, I miss her terribly. She wasn't just a mother-in-law and the daughter of my wife, but she, mother of my wife, but she, <laughs> wow, this talk took a turn. <laughs> oh, now, okay, now we're culturally appropriate. That's what you're saying. But she is one of my best friends and a spiritual mentor in 2018. She passed away, but before she died, Long before she died, she would always say this, and I want you to see it, it's really important. She said it all the time. She said, only two things in this world are eternal. The word of God and people, it only makes sense to build your life around those things that will last forever. And as only God can do, um, she lived this out. So years ago, when Ruth and I were first married, we both worked for the the DuPont Chemical Company um, before I went to seminary, out of college. And I'm sitting in my office in my desk one day and the phone rings. And of course, no cell phones back, back then. Um, and I had to crank the phone and pick it. No, just kidding. And so, and it's Ruth. And you know, just a lot more freedom now. But back in the day, like private phone calls just were not the norm. And I'm like, uh-oh, must be an emergency. He says, Lee, we need to pray right now. I said, what's going on? Well, mom is at the house, and Ruth grew up in a a three-story, 120-year-old Victorian home, 15 rooms on the Delaware River. And she said, mom is at the home right now, and there's a fire next door, and the fire department showed up and said, the wind is blowing the sparks over onto our house. The house is about to go up in flames. Oh, oh my. So we... We race home, we show up, thankfully the house is still there, the fire department's gone, but my mother-in-law is standing in the driveway with a massive, hefty sack. And I say, Mom, Mom, what's going on? She says, well, the, 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 the fire department um, gentleman told me that I had to go in and grab all my most precious valuables. I had to go do it right this second. And I remember Ruth and I are standing there and I said, well, what'd you grab? Did, like, they have some priceless antiques, right? They've collected furniture. No, no, I, I didn't get that. Well, you have some pictures that are, like, painting. No, no, I didn't get that. 
Well, over the years, jewelry has been passed on and, and dad has got you a lot. I didn't get that. And she opens up the hefty bag and it's full of pictures of people that she loves. And she pulls out which she had till the day she died. She pulls out her Jim Hall size massive Bible. I want you just to get a snapshot. I called Faith, Ruth's younger sister. The, the five siblings fought for the Bible. Faith got it. I said, could you take a picture? I should have said Philippians 3, but God knew, right? She just took a picture of Philippians chapter 1. You can't see it up there, but written in the margin, one of the many things written in the margin is the name Ruth. 3 1987. She's she's in college. She's 20 years old. Ruth said not to give her age, but she's not in this service, so I can do that. And it's pointing to Philippians chapter one and verse six, and she would pray this for her college daughter on a regular basis, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, Ruth, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The word of God will last forever. People will last forever. Everything else disappears. Thus, the real purpose of our lives is to advance Jesus' cause in the world. Everything else is secondary. So, this morning, I want to show us from our passage how the Apostle Paul has come to the same conclusion. And Paul is going to show us how to live our lives with purpose. Many years ago, Pastor Rick Warren wrote a book, The Purpose Driven Church, The Purpose Driven Life. Paul's going to show us what it really looks like to have a purpose-driven life as a follower of Jesus. And he starts with, you want to have purpose? He says, rejoice. He starts with the power of rejoicing. Philippians chapter three and verse one, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Underline that. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. You may not realize this, but Paul now issues a, a command. When he says to rejoice in the Lord, grammatically speaking, it is, let me nerd out here for a second, it is the, in the imperative present active tense. So it might better be translated, I command you to keep on, keep on rejoicing. You say, well, you can't come, he does. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, I command you, be full of joy. Throughout Philippians, Paul emphasizes the theme of joy. The words joy and rejoice appear 16 times in the four chapters. And here's what Paul is saying to us. By the way, here's some credibility from a prison cell. Well, Paul doesn't, under, he doesn't understand chain between two guards in a prison cell, anticipating his death. He doesn't understand. I think he does. Coming off a shipwreck, bitten by a snake, beaten numerous times, close to death. I mean, I think he understands. Here's what Paul is saying from a prison cell. Be happy because of God himself. Let God be the source of our happiness. We must derive 
our satisfaction, beloved, because we know him, because we understand that we are reconciled to him, loved by him, and will live forever with him. In other words, we mustn't let our happiness be, get this please, dependent on how well things are going at the moment. Circumstances can suddenly change. If Paul were writing to us today, I think he would say this, hey guys, pandemics and societal troubles, they've always been around. No, 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 it's the first time in the what? In the what? Do you remember things like, I don't know, the Vietnam War, World War II, World War I, Korean War? I think he would say, hey, beloved, nations will rise and fall, stock markets will crash, we can lose our money, our jobs, our health, and even our lives. Relationships can change, friends and family can disappoint. But... If we can just learn how to focus our minds so that we get our greatest happiness in God himself and all he has done is doing and will do for us and not from our circumstances, we will be so much happier and content. I love this verse by David and I didn't used to really understand it. I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't spiritually mature enough to get it. It sounded kind of boring. Now it sounds kind of great. Psalm 84 verse 10, better is one day in your courts just to be in your presence. Just one day than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents, the mansions, of the wicked. And because Paul understood that that we are prone to forget the most basic truths, he didn't mind repeating these truths that he had written to them previously. And these truths, although not new to them, would protect them. He says this, it is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Why does he say this? Because Paul um, understands that we have a tendency to forget truth, don't we? So we need to discipline ourselves. Discipline isn't a bad word, right? It's a good word. I want my airplane pilot to be disciplined, right? No, I want him to party like a rock star. No, 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 no. Don't want that. I want him to be focused, right? I want he or she to be focused. We need to discipline ourselves to read the Bible and hear the word of God being taught on a regular basis. Simply put, rejoicing in the Lord requires an intentionality on our part to go deeper in God's word, in prayer, in fellowship, as Noah just said, in service on a regular, daily, sometimes hourly basis. Now, I just wrote this down literally just this morning. I want you to get this. I didn't put it up on the screen. But rejoicing is a medicine we need to take every day. It is the antidote to anxiety and negativity. In Africa, there is a fruit. I want you to see this. It's called the taste berry. Um, It's really fascinating. Uh, The berry supposedly, a little bit of urban legend, but some swear by it. Um, The the berry supposedly, this berry can supposedly uh, affect one's taste for several hours. And not only is the berry itself sweet, but it changes a person's taste for the next couple of hours that everything you eat tastes sweet as well. Like right now, kids all across this room are getting on Amazon ordering the taste berry, right? No more broccoli. I want a taste berry. Make the broccoli taste good. And so you say, well, okay, 
taste very, makes everything taste sweet. What's your point? Rejoicing should be considered the taste berry of the Christian life. When we spend our days rejoicing in praise and gratitude, even the most sour circumstances in our lives can taste sweet, practically. If we praise God for who he is and what he has done for us, gratitude begins to well up inside of us. I didn't get a picture of this, I should have. But Faith got the, the, the Bible, Ruth got mom's calendars. She kept her calendars, and as you go through the calendar, almost every day, she's writing down scripture, she's writing down praises, she's rejoicing. It's so unbelievably encouraging and convicting all at once. If you got around my mother-in-law for 30 seconds, she would say this, I think I'm in the presence of Jesus. You say, well, you're just deifying her because she's dead. No, she was pretty amazing, but here's what's amazing. She didn't think she was very amazing. If we praise God for who he is and what he has done for us, gratitude will begin to well up within us. As a result, and we'll get to this, rather than asking God to remove pain, suffering, and trials from our lives, we may find ourselves praying that he accomplishes his will in the midst of them. Imagine that. As, as Paul continues to define purpose he goes from, typical Paul, this is very Pauline. He goes from the power of rejoicing, like, woohoo, taste bear, yeah, Ruth's mom, right on. He goes from that to a fiery rebuke. Typical Paul. Verse two, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. What? For it is we who are the circumcision, who we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in, in the flesh. Now, after um, commanding us to be jo joyful, Paul goes a little nuclear here, right? Um, with good reason. Evidently, some false teachers um, had infiltrated the church at Philippi and Paul wanted to make sure the congregation knew how to handle them. That's a good shepherd, by the way. In verse two, he uses three exceedingly harsh terms to describe these false teachers. He calls them dogs. Now, in his day, this was not fluffy, right? Your dog Benji, the Labrador, who you love. This isn't who it is. This is a mongrel, feral, um, disease-ridden animal scouring the streets that quite frankly, you had to have a weapon to beat off because they would come after you. In a turn of words here, though, Paul does something interesting. What did religious, Jewish religious leaders often call Gentiles? dogs. Paul turns that phrase on them. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. These men were immoral, influential, and doing harm to the body of Christ. They were zealous, but they were wrong. Active in the church, but evil in their influence. Again, again, it's so important, and I'm so grateful here at New Heights that we have, you know, this is self-serving, but we have strong, biblical, humble, God-fearing elders. And one of their jobs is the same job that Paul said to the elders at Ephesus as he was saying goodbye to them. Remember what he said to them? He said, he, he warned them. He said, be careful. He said, um, guard the flock because ravenous wolves from within the flock will rise up and seek to devour your sheep. You say, well, what do the elders do? That's partly what we do. 
Evidently, they were professing Jewish Christians who taught that you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Let me just say this. If you want to keep the law of Moses because you think it helps your community, you're not a fan of pork, you feel you're more healthy, great. That, that's on you. If you're trying to keep the law of Moses to, to, to be a believer in Jesus Christ, to have faith, that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing. They claimed that circumcision was necessary in order to be accepted and saved by God. And to the Apostle Paul, this was nothing less than heresy. And to say that you must keep the law in order to be saved, I believe, is to deny the gospel of grace. And these men were mutilating the souls of the people they claimed to be helping. Notice Paul's answer in verse 3 when he says, we are the circumcision. Here's what he means. He means that true believers have been circumcised in their hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't need a physical operation because we've had a spiritual heart transplant. And as a result, we worship in the spirit, we give glory to Jesus Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now let me be really clear about this, and I want you to see this on the screen behind me. Religion without Christ is dangerous. Religion without Christ is dangerous. Millions, maybe a lot more than that, millions of people today are trusting in their religion to get them to heaven. They believe because they were baptized as an infant or a child or a teenager or an adult that that alone will get them to heaven or they think that because they were raised as a Baptist or a Methodist or Lutheran or Church of Christ or in a Bible church, they must just inherently be born again. Uh, it's not so. Religion without Christ will send you to an eternity without Christ. Please hear this. We can say our prayers five times a day. We can be baptized. We can listen to John Tyson, John MacArthur, or John Mark Comer. We can take the Lord's Supper. We can light the Advent candle. We can even drop a million bucks in the offering plate. And by the way, don't, don't let me hold you back if you want to do that. But if we don't know Jesus, it won't do us any good. Um, many religious people have what I call a Christ plus faith. They're hedging their bets. They, they're kind of sort of trusted in Jesus, but baptism too. Jesus plus church membership. Jesus plus going to mass. Jesus plus, you know, good works. Jesus plus giving money. Here's my advice to us, and I want you to see it. Don't trust in your good works. They can't save you. Don't trust in your social action. It can't save you. Don't trust in your parents' religion. It can't save you. Don't trust in your baptism. It can't save you. Don't trust in your church attendance. It can't save you. You say, well, Lee, is it bad to do good things? No, it's really good to do good things. Baptism, church membership, giving, caring for the poor, really, really good stuff. But please hear this. If our hearts have never been circumcised by faith in Jesus Christ, we are not saved and we're not going to heaven. Jeremiah 31, if you've not been, your heart of stone has not been given a heart of flesh because you've given your life to the only one that can save you, Jesus, it's all for naught. That's the warning Paul wants us to understand. The power of rejoicing 
a fiery rebuke. He's building towards purpose. Thirdly, this morning, Paul talks about having the wrong resume. Philippians chapter three and verse three again, for it is we who are the circumcision. We've got a new heart. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself, Paul says, have, have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, <laughs> I persecute the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul gives us a personal illustration from his own life. And here's Paul's personal spiritual pedigree. This is his life resume. And, and this is what's hard for us, right? From the time we're born, by and large, not, not always, but by and large, our family, our culture, our society is saying, build your life resume. Build, 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 build. It's the most important thing that you have. So Paul lists seven different points about his background. He says, right ritual, circumcised on the eighth day. Right race, an Israelite. Well, can I get those up on there real quick? I think I put them there. Great, great. Um, right family, the tribe of Benjamin. Right religion, Hebrew of Hebrews. Right occupation, a Pharisee. Right zeal, a persecutor of the church. Right morality, outwardly keeping all of God's commands. And he basically says, top that. In our culture, this is dated now, but back in the day, when we thought of someone as really elite, we would call them what? Does anyone know? You can say it. Blue bloods. Blue bloods, I know. You're like, what is that? I don't even know what that means. Paul is, is a blue blood, a Hebrew blue blood. If you're not impressed, it's only because you aren't a Jew living in the first century. His, his resume is amazing. He was as in as you could be in the first century. He had it all, Jewish descent, an excellent Jewish education, high social standing, a reputation for keeping the law, a reputation for moral purity. What more could you want? And that's the point of the passage. What more could you want? If being religious could get us into heaven, right? Then Paul, Paul should have a guaranteed front row seat right next to Moses, Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. I mean, think, think about this. If, if you're talking about a high draft pick, he's number one. If I'm, if I'm drafting the all-religious team, it's either Abraham or Paul, and I'm probably going with Paul. He's amazing. The point is this. Many religious people in the world stop right here and they go no further. That is, they take a look at their spiritual resume and they figure, you know, it's not too bad. It's not as good as Paul's, but it's better than my neighbor. I'm not Hitler. I'm not, I'm not Stalin, right? It's not as good as Paul's, but it's surely good enough to, to squeak into heaven. They, they go to church occasionally, occasionally. Try to be good. They haven't killed anyone lately, not that they know of. They, they try to help others in need, and then they, they figure that somehow it's all gonna work out in the end. They just subscribe to the oldest religion in the world. You know what it is? You know what it is? The do the best you can religion. 
I've heard this so many times. They figure as long as you do your best, when you, when you die, God will smile. He'll look at you and go, oh, shucks, come on in. Most people sincerely believe the best, that doing your best is enough. What more could you want? And this leads to, fourthly this morning, a different type of accounting. Verse seven, Paul says, but whatever were gains to me, and I had a bunch, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Better translation would probably be dung, human excrement. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. As Paul considers his life before and after coming to Christ, he does kind of a mental accounting to draw up spiritual, a spiritual profit loss statement. On the profit side, he puts two words, Jesus Christ. On the loss side, he lists those seven things that he used to brag about. Now think about that for just a moment. He's saying my life resume, it doesn't matter at all. It's all garbage to me. The only thing that matters in my life is knowing Jesus Christ. Now why would Paul come to such a a, a radical conclusion when we read about garbage, right? We ordinarily assume he's talking about things that God calls sinful, Right, all sorts of, sorts of moral sins, pornography, gross misconduct, idolatry, racial prejudice, uncontrolled temper, all the other bad stuff that we know is wrong. If I said to you, get the garbage out of your life, how many would instinctively think about your ethnic heritage or your college education or your years as a community group leader? But that's precisely what Paul is talking about. For Paul, anything that keeps us from Christ is dung, no matter how good it looks to us. Now let me add something really, really important this morning. It's essential for us to recognize that we're not going to simply wake up one morning and discover that we suddenly hate what we used to love. The things of this world will never appear as garbage when viewed in and of themselves. They will smell good, they will taste good and feel good and bring satisfaction and we will treasure and value them and fight for them and work for them and find every excuse imaginable to get them at any and all cost. As it says in Lord of the Rings, they will become our precious. They will retain their magnetic appeal and allure and power until... They are set over and against the surpassing value and beauty of Jesus Christ. This is precisely what Paul is prescribing in Philippians 3. The things of the world, what we value, do, purchase, think about, possess, want, will not in and of themselves cease to be appealing. There is no magical transformation. In fact, their power to draw us into the trap will actually Increase. You say, well, gratefully, <laughs> what's the solution? I want you to write this down. 
Transformation will never happen until our heart is captivated by a rival attraction that is comparatively superior. Transformation will never happen, true transformation, until our hearts are captivated by a rival attraction that is, that is comparatively superior. Merely praying for sin to lose its grip on our heart won't work. Merely fighting against sin won't work. In other words, to give, something, um, to give up something simply for the sake of giving it up may work for a time, but in the long run it will return. Saying no to sin simply because we recognize it as evil may have a momentary impact, but in the long run we'll find a way to rationalize and excuse and justify our return to it. Saying no for no other reason than my parents told me it was the right thing to do or my pastor preached that or even the Bible says so has limited value in loosening the vice grip of sin on our souls. You say, Lee, what's the solution? Paul is saying that we need to replace them with, and this is my last point this morning, a new passion, a new passion. Verse nine, Paul says we replace those old passions by, and I want you to underline this, by being found in him, in him. Not Not your lake house, not your promotion, not your family. Those bad things, no. But if you're found in those things, you will never be satisfied. Paul says, we replace those old passions by being found in him. Now get this, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then Paul Paul says, you really wanna know what it's like to have a passionate, purpose-filled life? I wanna know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Here's the point of these verses. Put all that we have in Christ on one side of the ledger. We talked about this. And then put your spiritual resume on the other side. What we have in Christ is so great that nothing in this world can compare to it. Paul expresses the new passion and purpose of his life twice in these verses. He says in verse nine, that I may be found in him. He wants to live in such a way that when the end comes, he will be found in Christ. Do me a favor, just quickly. If you have it, I don't even have it up here. I'm just gonna have to mime it. But take a piece of paper, small piece of paper, all right? And have a book or a, a notebook that's bigger than that piece of paper. You can do this later at home if you want. Let the book represent Christ. And then let the piece of paper represent your life. This is what Paul's getting at. Now open the book, the folder, take the piece of paper, put it in there, close it up. Make sure the paper is completely covered. You can't see the paper. Now the paper, your life, is in the book, Jesus Christ. It is not enough to be near Christ. It's not enough to be next to Christ. 
We have to be in Christ. True salvation means to be in Jesus so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He doesn't care about your life resume. He doesn't care about your works, right? He doesn't care what family you came from, what school you went to. He doesn't care about your bucket lists. When it comes to eternal salvation, what he needs to see and only see is you in Christ. Boy, doesn't that take some burden off? Some of us are dancing and working and striving and I can't, I can't keep up. He said, I don't want you to keep up. Paul couldn't keep up. That's what Paul means in verse nine when he speaks of having a righteousness that comes from God by faith. To be in Christ means that God imputes or reckons or applies the righteousness of Christ to our account we get the credit for Jesus' perfect righteousness. And then he says this in verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, a participation in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. And I read this passage and I too, I'm not there yet, it's a process. I want to be able with Paul to honestly and sincerely and with joy say those things in my life that used to have a, a stronghold on me, I now regard as garbage in comparison with the surpassing beauty and glory of knowing Christ. They no longer have any appeal. The glitter and the glamour are gone. My eye is no longer drawn to look upon them. My heart is no longer in love with them. My will is no longer enslaved to them and my mind no longer thinks about them. So much so that when I suffer, I'm okay because it's just one more avenue that makes me more like my Savior, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is incomparably better. Jesus is enough. And only this enjoyment and satisfaction and delight in Jesus alone has the power, has the power to kill sin in our souls. As we finish this morning, let me ask all of us a question. When we come to the end of our lives, what will we have to show for the years we are on this earth? Let me be really candid. The, the problem that so many people have is they're still playing in the garbage heap of life and their hands are covered with the dung of earthly gain that counts for nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked the question this way. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? We're all on a journey from time to eternity. Sooner than we think, we'll be in a casket or an urn and people will be weeping over us What will they say about us then? What will they put on our tombstone? Will they say they they spent their lives on things that didn't matter or they met Jesus and their lives were never the same? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Or 
Are you still trusting in your religion to get you to heaven? I urge you to do a new accounting of your life and figure out what matters and what doesn't. If you don't know Jesus, you're in danger of losing your eternal soul. In this world and the next, nothing matters but knowing Jesus and being found in him. Are you willing to trade your life resume for the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Would you like to go to heaven? Would you like to have real purpose? Here are five words that can take you there. Only Jesus and Jesus only. May God help us to leave the garbage of our life resumes and good deeds and run to the cross where we can find new life and purpose in Jesus Christ. Will you please bow your heads? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up now and the prayer team. There's gonna be people all around this room. They may or may not have prayer stickers on, but you'll see them see standing up and maybe you're here this morning and you're like, oh my word, I've been captivated by religion and not by Jesus. Today's the day to be captivated by Jesus. Say, what, what, do, you, what do I do, Lee? Do what I, I did as a 17-year-old who walked an aisle to an old-fashioned, independent, fundamental Baptist church. Right there, I just gave my life. To, I said, I'm a significant sinner. I cannot save myself. Jesus, save me. I trust you. I turn from me and I turn to you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you and you alone. Today will be your day of salvation if that's what happens. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I know him, I love him, but I, quite frankly, I have not been obedient to the, his, his command of baptism. Uh, and especially now that Lord willing we're coming out of COVID, the baptism will be set up every week. Sometimes we have planned baptisms, sometimes they're spontaneous. We have towels in the back. If you wanna get baptized, come see someone on the prayer team or come see me. We'll do it, we'll do it in between services. We'll do it after the seconds, we'll schedule. It's so important, again, again. You're telling the world and you're telling most importantly, Jesus, I love you and I want everyone to know that you're it. You're my savior, you're my Lord, you're my everything. Maybe you're here this morning, you decide, I just wanna pray. It could be a, a rebellious child, it could be an angry boss at work, it could be you just want people to lay hands on you and pray for your mayor, I don't know. But as you know, if you've been to New Heights for any amount of time, we love to pray. Jesus says we have not because we ask not. So let's ask. So let me pray for you. Father, it is so tempting for us to spend all of our life as followers building our own life resume and to throw Jesus in on the side. And Paul says, it's all Jesus, your life resume comes underneath that. May it be so with us. 
May we as Paul thirst to know you more, to know you more deeper, to know you in your sufferings as we suffer, to know the power of your resurrection. Forgive us for trying to earn our way to you. May it not be so amongst us. And Father God, I pray right now for those in this room who are coming to that realization that they didn't know Jesus. I pray that today is the day. Jesus and Jesus alone. And we ask it in his name, amen.